Welcome to Ancient Answers, our program on dealing with current and modern challenges and reflecting upon the wisdom of the ancients who came before us. I'm Gordon. And I'm Shane. And welcome to Ancient Answers. Today's episode is a Q&A, actually a quote and answer. So to start off, we have a quote by Sun Tzu, who, uh, the author of The Art of War, if Ooh, I remember correctly, okay. so that should be interesting. So it's, uh, in the midst of chaos, there is also opportunity. Very, very much like the, from the mind of the man who wrote The Art of War. <laughs> That's true. And actually, that I think is a universal aspect. As historians, we are certainly aware of the fact that even in times where tremendous social upheaval, uh, large-scale warfare, uh, sometimes remarkable things came out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, my personal one that, to me, is the benchmark is the Peloponnesian War. Mm -hmm. If we think about that conflict, which, if you didn't study it, it would probably never cross your mind, but it was an important event because it was one of the first documented military conflicts where you pitted uh, sort of demo democratic Athens against a kind of an oligarchy, uh, actually an unusual state of, of Sparta and the way they lived their lives. Mm -hmm. And you had thought at the beginning that it would be Sparta that would just knock this hands down because they were so much organized, they had so much money, they were much wealthier, had bigger trade commerce and so on than the Spartans. But in the end, it would turn out to be the other way around. Yeah, the, the Spartans did end up coming out as the champions in the, in, uh, in the Peloponnesian War, partially because they allied themselves with the Persians. <laughs> That's right. But it's, it was still a massive opportunity for Sparta, though, when they, they managed to break Athens... Uh, their empire, for lack of a better term, because Athens at this point was exerting a lot of influence across the Mediterranean and was the preeminent state in all of Greece. And Sparta ended up just taking all that away from them once they, once they broke their navy, especially. And they were able to exert a lot of influence. And then they were able to introduce the 30 tyrants into Athens and start trying to make things a little bit more Spartan in the across the Mediterranean Sea. That's also true. If you also look, and we use Roman history as an example, during the time of Julius Caesar, let's say plus or minus about 30 years, there was a fair bit of turmoil in the Roman uh, Republic. Uh, and yet during that time, some of the best writers, some of the most thoughtful mm -hmm. writers of ancient Rome lived and wrote very lucidly about the fact that amongst all this great change, there was opportunities. And we, we know that actually during the, the civil conflict of the Roman Republic, it was the greatest individual surge of commerce that took place. And during that time, while the guys were fighting in the, in the warships on the, on the Mediterranean and on land, there was actually an extensive outreach by traders going farther, farther locations. So mm -hmm. it's interesting that that has been pointed out that great turmoil, mm -hmm. you know, great confusion time. There were those bright minds and brave souls who saw, well, I can't do this anymore. What if I tried this? Mm -hmm. And therefore, they will try something else. In this case, it was expansive commerce. But we have that as well. If you look at even uh, a little bit later on, you could say that during the fall of the Roman Empire, we saw the creation of a number of great works of writing that came out in the 300s and 400s, mm -hmm. including some of the key Christian origin writings that have you know influenced people to this day. Uh, so it's true. Yeah, absolutely. And... and you know, this podcast is all about tying the ancient and modern together. So to use a more modern example of in the midst of chaos, there is also opportunity. It's not a terribly pleasant example, but um, the, the reason why there is a space program on, on Earth and why there are different countries that have this technology is due to the Germans in World War II. 
It was Nazi scientists that developed the first rockets. Uh, and unfortunately, the technology, well, fortunately for us, actually, the technology came along and developed too late and too slowly to help Germany in World War II. But it was literal Nazi rocket scientists that made the contributions to build the first rockets and to help us get out into space and to put man on the moon. And true, I mean, modern day today, we certainly see that reflection. I mean, it's a popular uh, thought today when we say that when there's confusion or sometimes there's an economic thing, like confusion in the market or uncertainty in the market or an economy, that there's opportunities for innovations, entrepreneurs to find niches, new niches, new technologies that might come along and answer, uh, answer a need. You go back to the ancient days. The interesting thing, though, is in spite of a times, particularly after the fall of the, of the Bronze Era, so roughly... Uh, 1100 BC to 500 BC, this sort of semi-dark ages we see mm-hmm. in the European, uh, Eastern European areas and <laughs> the Middle East. Which was called, which we refer to as the Greek Dark Ages, not because of anything terrible to happen, but just because they didn't write a lot about that period. That's right. <laughs> it, it, it would have been before the second writing system came into being, which became popularized yeah. uh, due to the great thought coming out of the 5th century mm-hmm. Athen- Athenian and the other Greek uh, uh, city-states. But you go back, this is roughly a thousand years before then. You know, I'm much aware, this is a big area that I find quite interesting. We don't have a lot of a written record, but we can certainly make great inferences about the fact that there was enormous trading going around between what would have been the uh, uh, ancient Greece. Now, it was called the Mycenaean Greece. It was actually populated by a different group mm-hmm. of people that would come along later to build Athens. But also, we have evidence of, of course, the Egyptians were trading that during that time, uh, we do know we have records of, of, of uh, shipping expeditions, trading expeditions, where they were literally talking about, well, let's move on further because it's too confusing, too difficult to work with what we have now. Hmm. Let's see if there's other markets. And it's during that time we are aware that there was beginning some regular shipping arrangements. Uh, I can't imagine how dangerous it would be to go out of, the, out of the Mediterranean and circle around Spain and up France and so on that were bringing tin back oh, from wow. uh, Great Britain, what would later become Great Britain, and also some of the, some of the uh, other precious metals that were becoming part of the mix. Now, no one really fully understands why around the year 1100 there was such a terrible collapse of the empires that had existed in the Mediterranean. Uh, but certainly, life continued on and rebuilt itself and found new opportunities with a new structure that came along later. So just like the dinosaurs getting wiped out by a meteorite gave rise to an opportunity for the mammals to eventually occupy a pretty important niche, and we're mammals, so... <laughs> there, there's an, and there's an ancient example. <laughs> there's an ancient example, like a really ancient example. That's, that's about as far as you can go, I think. <laughs> that whenever there is a lot of confusion, a lot mm-hmm. of uncertainty, um, or even oppression, mm-hmm. human beings do tend to find innovation ways to solve problems. Yeah. And if those innovations are new ideas or new ways of doing things, they could have an enormous benefit going down the road. Uh, mostly for good. There has been a few ones that didn't work out yeah. so nicely. but Well, necessity is the mother of invention, right? That's right. That's right. Well, that's a great one from mm-hmm. there. All right. So next, we have Socrates, one of the preeminent Athenian philosophers. Although apparently he was really annoying to his compatriots, but hey. Whereas my friend says, Socrates. Socrates? (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) So, Socrates once said, beware the barrenness of a busy life. Beware the barrenness of a busy life. 
Well, that had brings some profound thoughts. Well, and what I what I like about this is that this is um, that's sort of the the tagline for just about every like Hallmark Christmas movie that's out there, or feel good family film, where you've got dad who's always away that's, working and he's never true. at home with his wife and kids and da 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 da, da and then he learns to love at the end, right? Like, <laughs> well, it's certainly. I mean, if you look at our recent industrialization era, let's suppose the last two hundred years or so. It is true that we do figure that the average working man, I'm just going to refer to men for a second, uh, not that women didn't work, I'm just no. I'm going to use the example for men, uh, that the working men, they would start dealing with their initial factories, and mm-hmm. initial, of course, mining has been done for millennia, but their life was pretty tough. Oh, absolutely. You know, they, we, until unions came along, until working uh, legislation came along, you know, it wasn't uncommon for a man to be putting in 14 and 16 hours of physical hard labor mm-hmm. in an industrial environment. Yeah. And then if people say, well, you know, the people who were farmers had it tough. Well, yes and no. There are certainly, their planting season and harvesting seasons would be physically very demanding. But we have ample evidence throughout most of the ancient history records in our surmises that the average farming person, which would make up 90% of most societies, did have time for festivals and did have time for personal activity, as we would call it today. We just have no idea how much it was because mm-hmm. anybody who looks at the planting season and the cycle of planting that takes place, uh, the one place the busiest in the ancient world would have been Egypt, where they can get sometimes three crops in a year. Mm-hmm. But in the central and northern European area, in terms of Greek, Roman, and later Celtic and, and uh, Germanic tribe sort of, uh, experience, your growing season was actually very defined. Yeah. For and therefore, sure. during the winter time, you wasn't much to do except just keep the animals alive and shovel. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know about shoveling where we live. <laughs> and uh, so that's a question. That's a speculation. If you've got a comment about that, don't forget to come onto our website and, and, and chime in and let us know. Mm-hmm. But when we were looking at what the workloads were, it is a strong argument to say, with the exception of slaves, who could be expected to work literally dawn to dust, most working people, generally speaking, around the ancient world, had more time at their leisure than we are led to believe, possibly more than even us today. Well, and, and that's a really interesting remark, because to talk about the farming for a second, with ancient Greece, if I, if I remember correctly, um, the Greek harvest time and farming season would actually be in the winter, because in the summertime it was just too hot. And summertime was actually their primary warfare season. So they'd farm in the winter fight all summer long, but they also would find time, a lot of farmers were actually full-time farmers and part-time Olympic athletes. It was expected that athletes would train for roughly nine months leading up to a set of games. And most competitors had other jobs and other vocations, and they had enough time to be able to do both. And what, and to go to the last point that you made about how ancient peoples may have had more free time on their hands than we do, uh, I read a book not too long ago that talked about that among hunter-gatherers, where in order to sustain a small community of hunter-gatherers, let's say 50 people, um, you only really had to forage for food for maybe three hours a day. And then the rest of your day you could spend working on you know, clothing and shelters and material and this and that. But three hours a day per person was all you really needed in order to help the community thrive. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why we saw the development of arts amongst human beings, carvings, uh, jewelry, and, and stuff like that, because they had time to do this. In the ancient days, it wasn't that there was a specifically 
an artisan class all the time. Mm -hmm. Many people seem to have an artistic uh, bent themselves or a personality and would, would try to carve or do something like that. Well, some of those carvings, when you look at them, do take a significant amount of time. So you have to factor in they were doing something other than trying to grow food. Uh, that's an interesting thought. We're going to look into more, and we have a link to our website, which we have a couple links to the book and so on, if you want to take a look mm -hmm. at some of the thought. We're going to address this issue, I'm sure, in the future, uh, sort of the idea of work in the ancient days and mm -hmm. how they saw it uh, compared to how we see it today. Mm -hmm. the, the other aspect, we've got another uh, another quote here. Yeah, so this, is, well, this one's by Plato, so a little bit after Socrates. Uh, he who is not a good servant will not be a good master. He who is not a good servant will not be, or not likely to be a good master. Yeah, will not be a good master. Well, we expect that today in our democracies, don't we? That's, we yeah. Yeah, we expect our politicians to to have uh, have lived a life like most of us, where they have to deal with responsibility and get educated and, you know, uh, pursue family relationships of whatever type they like and work with and be responsible and show that in their personal life they show some sense of discipline mm -hmm. before they take on the responsibility and vote it in, at least, for public service. Well, and along those lines, with modern politicians in, in modern democracies, it's really important to note the fact that they are public servants. They That's are right. elected by the people to serve in the capacity that we want them to. That's right. They're, they're elected because their ideals and their goals are in line with what the majority of the population wants. That's a profound one to think about because I think it is a human expectation that if you're going to be a leader, you need to have been a follower at some time to mm -hmm. at least understand. Because most of us, I think today, don't like the idea of someone getting a position of authority because of direct family relations mm -hmm. or appointments or so on. I mean, we know that in the ancient days that was commonplace. Yeah, monarchies. And monarchies and stuff like that. Yeah. Although the Romans did for their during their peak time of the empire, uh, the emperor would choose and select That's his true. successor. That was a unique... Uh, yeah, he, he, the emperor would adopt his successor. If it you know, didn't matter what the family connection was. That's right. He would just, you know, you're the one I want, come here. <laughs> because they expected the person would learn enough how to do the job effectively upon the passing of the, of the first mm -hmm. emperor. That's right, yeah. Well, that, I think, follows to our sense today of leadership. I mean, we are a highly organized society today, far more than people realize. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have school boards, and we have elected politicians, and we have uh, people that represent us in a whole variety of ways, even with not-for-profit organizations. We do kind of expect that someone who gets in the position of leadership has a fundamental understanding of how to be a follower, mm -hmm. so they, they don't abuse their followers yeah. subsequently. Well, and, and along those lines, on, on a much smaller scale, I, I worked in residence for many years when I was in university as a, what would be called a, an RA or a residence don. And, and I remember, because um, there were the residence dons and there were the head residents who looked after entire buildings and they would supervise the, the RAs. And so that was always a question that would, would come up quite often is how do you lead a group of leaders? And so yes, that's the sort of same idea because we would have to, we, we started out as you know, students in residence and then you live for a year and then you apply for the job. And if you meet the criteria and you've got leadership was a big aspect of it, then you would move up into a supervisor position and then carry on through the ranks there. Indeed, if you think of any of the criticism that comes out, let's say in our modern Western world of, uh, well, actually globally, technically now, mm -hmm. wherever there's elected officials. We do kind of expect elected officials are, quote, one of us, mm -hmm. and not of some elite category so far removed from the everyday person's problems and issues that they don't understand anything, because we assume that they'll make decisions 
uh, divorced from the reality of that most people face. Yeah, that, that's the thing. It's, it, it is important that there, uh, in terms of elected officials, that there be some grounding in reality, that they have an understanding of what the everyday person goes through. <laughs> I mean, Socrates, when he made that statement, was part of... Uh, Plato, actually. Oh, sorry. So, Socrates, sorry? Was the, Socrates was the previous I one. I correct Plato. <laughs> uh, that's true. With his thought during the time... I mean, it kind of goes back to our previous quote. He was living during a time of great tumult. Oh, yes. Great uh, uprising and, and society changing. And it's interesting. He would see that, that, uh, that importance that, you know mm-hmm. what? You still have to have a grounding before you can be a leader. Yep. Yeah, that is yeah, an excellent point. All right, and our last one. So we're heading east again from Lao Tzu, and an ant on the move does more than a dozing ox. An ant on the move does more than a dozing ox, a sleeping ox. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's true. That just has to go down to inertia. physics. Now we're just getting into physics, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a profound one because where I see interpretation for our day today is sometimes people look and always having the big spectacular achievement mm-hmm. uh, that something is going to come out of left field and it's going to happen spectacular or the person gets plucked out of obscurity and ends up being someone famous. Yeah. All those are made for great stories and are part of our culture. Mm-hmm. But the true progress, I would say, is from the incremental addition of pressure, decision, and action. Yeah. Chipping away. There's more done by chipping away at a problem than sometimes coming up with some grandiose uh, spectacular solution only. Yeah. Well, and, and to, to use a more sort of everyday example, I, I would say, I, you know, I'm a big fan of music. I play trumpet and I play guitar and a little bit of piano. And if I were to practice five minutes every single day, that would get me a lot further than if I practiced 30 minutes once a week. You know, just it's all the little steps that will really, and if you can keep that dedication and stick to it, you know, anyone who's ever looked at a hill of ants sees it, it's, it's constantly moving it's dynamic and there's always something going on and they're always building and always foraging whereas to use the example here uh, uh, an ox that's driving a plow how often do they have to work for it's I, sometimes they call it the lawnmower theorem the long I've never heard well, of this it, the lawnmower theorem or sometimes in today's weather and climate, I call the sud the snowmobile theorem. Here's I'll go back to lawnmower because okay. it makes sense. <laughs> okay, so you could spend a lot of money, up to five or six hundred dollars, buying an expensive, fancy lawnmower. But then, how often do you actually use it? Oh. It spends ninety nine percent of its time sitting <laughs> in the garage. Whereas, you know, I know some people, and no joke, they buy a goat. They figure the goat will keep their lawn cut by just nibbling at it a little bit every day. It'll fertilize it, too. And then when the goat, when the goat breaks down, you've got... Yeah, that's right. It doesn't work so well in urban areas. No. It doesn't work in the suburban areas. Neighbors region. are going to call you in on that one. No, that's a bit of a joke. Uh, yeah, but it's true. It, it, it's, we've, we've seen many examples... Of people, we'll have some links on our website to show you some thoughts afterwards. And what, what is what is our website, Gord? While we're on the subject, it's uh, www.ancientanswers.info. All right, perfect. <laughs> well, that's going to be a wrap for today. I think we've had an interesting dealing with four interesting quotes from the ancient days and seeing mm-hmm. how we we think about it today. Look forward. We're going to continue this series, so look forward to more of our Q and A episodes. Uh, I'm Gordon Harris. And I'm Shane Kingsbury. And thank you for listening to Ancient Answers, the Q&A edition.